Welcome, investigator. Evil is on the rise. Crime is escalating. Our mission is to eliminate the crime by exposing evil, examine why it manifests, and highlight the brave souls that confront it every day. Join us as we work together to bring justice to every victim. Welcome to All Things Crime. Here's your host, Jared Bradley. I think people in general view each other through the prism of your own perspective. And so I think most people will look at him. And like you said, most people who look at him have absolutely no ability to comprehend what his thought process is. And I think because of that, well, reverting back to the insane, you know, he's just insane. It just kind of puts him in a category that's completely separated from ourselves. And therefore, like, that guy is totally different from me. I would never have those kind of And I think that's almost like a protection mechanism that we all go through. But I think our inability to look at somebody like that through the prism of our own eyes, but even somebody that's not like that, just somebody that would do something dishonest or, you know, they would cheat on an exam or even something as simple as stealing a candy bar. We look at something like that and say, oh, you know, I just wouldn't do that. And that's why I think a lot of us are shocked when we find out that somebody does do something like that, that you're close to. But when it goes to that extreme, it's honestly, it's extremely difficult for me to even as I'm listening to you speak, I'm like, just not relating with this. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that anybody would hear this story and just go, Oh, yeah, that dude's insane. So how do we as a society? Oh, you said one in 25 are kind of like this. How many of those people that are out there are going to be like James Holmes, where they are? They'll actually do, you know, they'll actually pull the trigger. They'll plan something like this. Well, and that's the scary part. I mean, I think it also really sort of speaks to what happened in the aftermath of this too, because people, you know, it, it is really hard. We, our brains cannot process this kind of senseless violence. And so our impulse is to want to blame somebody. You know, it's Dr. Fenton's fault. You know, that was the first, she was the lightning rod for this. It must be her mm-hmm. fault. Had she put him on a mental health hold, this would not have happened. This tragedy would not have happened. And so it's a it's an easy sort of pat explanation for what happened. But the fact of the matter is she couldn't have put him on a mental And a psychiatrist is only at the mercy of what the patient reveals. So she can't get inside his head to know what it is he's thinking in order to stop him or try to help him. You know, she's given the information from him and he's an unreliable reporter, right? So it's that piece that's also scary. But you're right. When people can't blame the psychiatrist, who are they going to look at? And then we've got this issue of, well, we have other people that sort of exhibit these very sort of scary behaviors, but I don't want to report them. Yeah, You know, I don't want to report them because what if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong? And if I'm wrong, am I going to get in trouble because I didn't call it right? So that's also problematic and scary. And so the impulse for people is, I mean, the easy thing is blame somebody else, take no responsibility or accountability. And if it wasn't the psychiatrist, then blame the parents. Parents shouldn't have done this. And the Aurora actually profiles a lot of mass shooting cases to give some perspective to that, to say it is not easy and it is not a pat response. We can't just point a finger at somebody and say, it's their fault. I had nothing to do with it and it's their fault. And the problem is there's this whole ripple effect of 
trauma and violence that that the book talks about that I really identified with as I was writing this book because I started to realize that these acts are not done in a vacuum and they're not done and forgotten. They become part of the fabric of our lives. And that's what is horrifying about it. So we cannot ignore it because it happens repeatedly and it will happen again, whether or not we pay attention to it or try to do something about it. And I know that, you know, we are trying to do something about it, but it's, it's, it's almost impossible because it's not as if we're saying, okay, you know, anytime we see these three things, X, Y, Z, we'll know that person is going to be the next mass shooter and we'll be able to lock them up. You know, it's not that simple. And because Dr. Fenton is the only psychiatrist who has ever been publicly outed, she's the perspective that we have. She's the lens. And we don't know how many other psychiatrists out there are faced with situations where they have a patient walk in and they're like, you know, do I expose them? You know, I mean, the, the standards are pretty strict. You know, they have to have a specific target and a specific plan. And if they don't have that, they can't be locked up. Well, you know? so, and I don't think this is just our society. I think this is just people in general. We have this tendency to look in hindsight and then bring that information forward as if we should have been making decisions at the moment based on information we didn't have yet. And there's different standards as well. So you look back at, well, again, at Hitler and you say, well, the, the German people should have known. And they didn't have the information that we have right now. And I, and I think, as you're describing, Dr. Fenton is kind of the same way. I mean, this guy was absolutely evil. But a lot of the information that we would use to describe him as evil, she didn't have at the moment. And like you said, it, it's not like he revealed his plan to her. You know, who was it that was outing her and who was it that was blaming her all of it. I, and I agree with you. There's always, and it's so interesting if you watch the media, it's like in their rush to get the story out, a lot of times they will assign blame where blame doesn't exist, shouldn't exist. And, you know, even the, the Atlanta Olympics bomb that went off where they blamed that security guard. And I think it was just because it was such a horrific event that people immediately started saying, well, it's got to be this guy. And and I think the media in their rush to get some kind of a breaking story out there throws these. It, it's not based on facts. And I think that's a dangerous game because then you get into what you were describing as that ripple effect where the ripple is going the wrong direction and it's not a justified direction. And it, but it's still causing damage. And I, I think that's where... A lot of us, and this is kind of a tangent, but I think a lot of us have to stand back and take a deep breath and say, yes, this is horrific, but we've got to take the emotion out of it and then make sure we're going in the right direction with everything, not just the investigation, but also even, you know, assigning blame and things like that. So is that, do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's very accurate. I think that, you know, not only do people get blamed and then, you know, once you put a face to a an act, you know, I mean, it's people want to hold Dr. Fenton up as the poster child for, you know, that sh this is what she should have done or should have known. And she didn't have those facts. I think the same is true when people want to put a quick, well, I don't know if it's quick, but it's a, it's an explanation. You know, we need more mental health. You know, we need better mental health. 
Well, the fact of the matter is mental health had nothing to do with this. You know, I mean, Holmes was not mentally ill and 90% of the mass shooters out there do not seek out mental health counseling. So it's not as if mental health counseling or better mental health counseling would have helped James Holmes or would even stop a mass shooter in the future. You know, it's not to say that mental health or better mental health is not important and certainly would be helpful in helping the traumatic effects of these mass shootings. You know, the people, the survivors, the family members, they certainly could use mental health, but it's not for lack of mental health that we have mass shooters, you know? So that's one area where people want to point a finger and say, we just need better improvement up here. You know, (laughs) I think it would, we, it's certainly helpful to have continued dialogue about it and open-mindedness about it and not put such stigma on it, but it's not going to stop a mass shooter. And the Mm -hmm. same is true for the gun debate. I mean, Aurora is not a book about gun activism per se, but it certainly brings in that conversation. And so I think people in a desperate attempt to understand senseless violence and to be able to do something about it are going to look at those two options. Do we ban guns completely? Do we improve and increase mental health awareness? I mean, are those the two areas that we can focus on? Do we put baskets of rocks in classrooms so that kids can arm themselves and throw rocks at the next mass shooter that opens the door. I mean, there's all these like, you know, you start to get all of these ideas, you know, thrown in the way and none of them are wrong per se. It's just, it's important to keep that conversation going. Well, ironically, right before we came on, I was watching some of your YouTube videos, which I should mention, you do have a YouTube channel. But right after I watched one of your videos, then that um, the Christmas parade guy that ran over all those people with the the SUV came on. And it was kind of showing the the trial where he insisted on representing himself and that turned into. But, you know, again, I think it goes back to what do we blame? You know, sometimes, first of all, let's take all the inanimate objects out of it because they are the masters of the person that is directing them. And that includes an SUV that includes uh, a rental truck in France uh, or in London. And it also includes weapons and, you know, any kind of a a gun. It's, there's no way to control those. And do we ban knives when there's a mass stabbing? You know, it's inanimate objects. To me, we have to take those out of the conversation because not saying there shouldn't be some controls. It's like there's a reason that we don't allow 12-year-olds to drive. But at the same time, and anything like that just serves the master of who is controlling it. So I think we have to redirect that conversation back to the person and saying, okay, James Holmes, yes, he had a long gun and all sorts of ammunition, and he, he had uh, booby-trapped his apartment, you know, to blow up all sorts of first responders and and. So, yes, this guy was completely psychotic. But how do we, if it's possible, and from what you're describing, it's not really possible to identify these kind of things. It's not like we can ever do minority report where we're stopping crime before it actually happens. And really, what's the answer? Is it just a matter of just saying, well, this is just part of life and it's going to happen no matter what we do? Well, I think there is there is one area that I think can be 
improved, which in most of these cases, and even if they don't commit a mass shooting, in most of these cases, there is some communication by the person, whether they've created a manifesto, a notebook, social media post, a conversation with somebody. In Holmes' case, there were G-chats that he had with his girlfriend. Okay, so there is some communication in the Virginia Tech case that Cho was in an English class and wrote very violent, disturbing plays and poetry. You know, I think when there is that kind of communication, there has to be some repercussion. And I think the problem that we have now is people are afraid to be the one to call that person out. They're afraid Why do you think that's their own repercussion. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people are so afraid to call somebody out? Well, I think they're afraid to be wrong. So I think they're afraid that if they are wrong, there's going to be repercussion against them. We're in a litigious society. People can sue. People can, you know, I, but I don't see where the harm would be. For example, if a teacher who's at the front line, who gets a student in their class, who is just seems scary. I mean, it's that impression that we're talking about, that first impression, that initial sort of weird, repellent feeling about a person. You know, they're going to get off that vibe. Most of them will. If that person, you know, if the teacher says, hey, you know, maybe this person deserves to be watched a little bit more. Maybe there's something that they're going to turn in. You know, maybe their friends are, maybe they don't have friends, but they're communicating in some fashion. And I think there has to be some kind of immunity given to the people that are the watchdogs, if you will. So that if they get it wrong, they're not going to be crucified they're not going to be fired for it or sued. There's got to be some kind of protection for that person that's going to take a gamble and say, I think this person is going to do something. And maybe that's the area that can be improved. Well, but then on the other side of that is the person that might just be a little off. Maybe they're just a little awkward. If they get falsely accused, they're just like, I wouldn't understand not being able to you know, sue the person that's accusing them. But at the same time, if that's ever abused, there has to be some kind of repercussions. And I don't know, that's, that might be one of those slippery slopes that somebody's yeah. definitely smarter than me needs to, needs to, you know, maybe you should take that on. You can help society figure out the scale on when somebody should get reported. But when I was looking at your book, and the, the way it was advertised, like on Amazon and things, one of the headlines in there was the hair on her um, arm started standing up when she first met James Holmes. And I agree with you that there is a vibe out there. And I think every person has it. And there's a certain level of that first impression. There's a certain creepiness that somebody automatically detects. And it's interesting that you said that James had a girlfriend. I'm like, oh, what What was she like? I know. I mean, that was really interesting. I mean, he, you know, he connected, strangely so, in, in a relationship. I mean, it didn't last long, but it was certainly a way to, you know, he was attempting to connect with another human being in his own way. I mean, I think that is interesting. And I don't, that's, I mean, again, he's kind of went against a lot of the stereotypes, you know? I mean, he's, he's not a loner necessarily. He was awkward and different, but so were most of the students in his neurosciences program. It kind of went with the territory. So mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, it, it is a slippery slope, but in a lot of these cases, 
they will write something. They will write it, communicate it in some fashion. And that's the time when it's that type of communication. It's not just, you know, the guy, the person's weird. I mean, that's the first step. But what else are they doing? Now, what else are they saying? Very few of them will just do it without any type of recording. Thanks for joining us. Your attention today brings us one step closer to exposing and eliminating the evil that brings crime to our communities. Hit subscribe and share this episode. Together, we will bring justice to every victim.